Welcome to the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. This podcast is sponsored by my supporters on Patreon and by B Books, publisher of A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, which is now available in print, ebook, and audiobook. B Books also publishes climate smart romance novels by Tara L. Roy. Learn more at bbooks.org. You'll also get free climate smart downloads, including tips for weathering drought and flood, and the Farm Emergency Preparedness Plan. When you subscribe to BeeBooks newsletter, sign up at beebooks.org, beebooks.org. I'm your host, author and multimedia artist, Rebecca L. Fraser, and I'm excited to share this episode of the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast with you. So let's dig into it. Chapter 24, The Post-Carbon City and Farming, a chat with UCLA's Stephanie Pincel. We need to decouple the idea that human well-being is predicted on endless growth. We need to consider what's produced, by whom, for whom, and how. My vision is about addressing the fierce urgency of now not about the smart city where tech growth fuels a city that does everything for us and puts us out of work. That won't address the issues. We need to rebuild cities that reflect our dependence and interact well with our environment. The post-carbon city is key to planetary survival. If we shape it correctly, we transform ourselves and a future Earth. That's Stephanie Pincel speaking at UCLA's Earth 2050 conference. I met farmer and professor Stephanie Pincel at UCLA's Earth 2050 conference in October 2016. Pincel's lab collects and assesses data about urban ecology, as well as urban resource use, mainly electricity, gas, and water. Pincel's presentation on the post-carbon city inspired me, so when we reconnected in the summer of 2017, I asked her to consider how a post-carbon farm might operate. In our conversation, which follows, she described to me what sounded more like a complete agricultural system. Can you put your research on cities into context for an agricultural audience? Uh, we still 
stress level boiling information for electricity and natural gas and water for, El for Los Angeles City. And we map that uh, use against uh, county, uh, against assessor data. So we're able to say uh, older vintage buildings are by and large more robust, energy efficient. Uh, people who live in the low-income areas use by and large this amount of electricity or natural gas. Um, larger homes in wealthier neighborhoods um, use by and large this amount of electricity and natural gas. In order to be able to say if we want to reduce energy use, electricity and natural gas in the built environment, these are the targets for doing so. Mm -hmm. So the analogy I like to use is, say you go to a parking lot and you want to buy a car. And you have a whole bunch of cars and you have no idea how gas, how much gas they use. That's the state of our understanding of building today. So if you're really serious about moving to uh, reducing your greenhouse gas emissions from cities, and making buildings more efficient, you better know what they do. Mm. So that's what a big portion of my lab's work um, does. And we're also interested in questions of urban ecology. So how much does green infrastructure make a difference? Where does it make a difference? Um, a whole set of questions around, around that. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, that's great. Okay, and can you briefly Tell me, how much does green infrastructure make a difference? Green infrastructure makes a difference, um, just like in agriculture, <laughs> depending on where you are. Mm. So um, there's no, one of the things that I find completely irritating about <laughs> the green infrastructure uh, discourse is that all cities are the same. So mm. if you put a green roof on, uh, and rain barrels. Uh, if you live in uh, Miami, New York City, or like Los Angeles, it's all the same. It's just not. So we live in a semi-arid environment. A green roof makes zero sense. Rain barrels are kind of silly. Mm -hmm. But re-infiltrating the huge amount of stormwater that we do get is the way to go to increase uh, water supply. And we can do that through BMPs uh, uh, on streets and bioswales and dry wells and spreading grounds and all kinds of other techniques in this strategy. So for this reason, there are certain kinds of solutions compared to other regions, depending on what your problem is and not the All places do not have the same kind of challenges. What does the post-carbon farm look like? What does the post-carbon farm look like? Uh, it looks like a lot more physical labor. It looks like reintroducing animals to farming. Mm -hmm. It looks like um, thinking about managing soils in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's um, that 
Okay. Can you tell me about your farm? My husband and I have a 20 acre orange grove in a place called Ohio, mm -hmm. which is just uh, about 90 miles north of Los Angeles uh, in Ventura County. Mm -hmm. And it's a small, it's a small valley that has historically grown really superb. It requires an enormous amount of irrigation and um, pumping of water, of course. It's, um, that is done with uh, electricity. Mm -hmm. And it's from an example of you know, this kind of very complex trade-off that one should really think about carefully in terms of the use of energy, the use of water relative to the product. So we don't grow oranges, where will the oranges come from? And those are the kinds of difficult questions that we have to really start looking at uh, seriously. Do you have thoughts about making your farm more like the post-carbon farm that could exist? So we are doing things like mulching. Mm -hmm. We have down probably uh, of, uh, of, of mulch uh, on, on the orchard, which, will re which reduces the number of transpiration, improves soil, um, and uh, makes water, makes the irrigation more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, but like many very small farmers, and you know, we are gentlemen farmers, so we don't make a living off of this at all. Um, we cover our water costs and the orchard management costs because we don't directly manage it every day. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have the resources in place to actually transition to something different. Uh, and what that would look like, I don't know. We would have to have our own well and pump groundwater, right? And mm -hmm. so what, what are the implications for the groundwater resource? Um, you know, so there's a whole set of questions. Which this orchard is a legacy orchard. It was planted probably, uh, well, it's been an orchard probably almost 100 years. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't, so there are these transition questions that are really hard to resolve on an individual basis. And I think that part of the, part of the problem is to think about solutions as emanating from single individuals and adding up to a transformation. Right. That is totally unrealistic. So, you know, better question would be, would the Ojai Valley growers, um, what is the capacity of the Ojai Valley growers to come together around a post-carbon transition? Not very high, because the alternative uh, networks don't is this a conversation that you have initiated in your in in your area? No, we're we've initiated other kinds of conversations, mm -hmm. like um, the use uh, the use of pesticides for the digestillage uh, for the digestillage, mm -hmm. and that's a whole other set of issues about how you manage your orchard and citrus in the state of California to be less uh, vulnerable to disease through improving the soil and improving 
effective right. uh, for the kind of, and that is, uh, you know, a very uh, difficult conversation because you go against the um, California Department of Food and Agriculture, you go against the very, very well-organized uh, Farm Bureau, which is in an alliance with the uh, the petrochemical industry, mm-hmm. the pesticide company, and the sprayers, the vested interest in maintaining the current regime, even though it's not going to work. Right? It's a power struggle. Yes. It's a power And in order to be successful, um, you need a sea change among enough growers so that um, they say, no, I have more than a full-time job. I cannot organize growers in the Right. So once again, you know, it's uh, the individual is relatively constrained mm-hmm. uh, in in dealing with these kinds of questions. And like so many of these questions, um, it's it's really um, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. So do you think the post-carbon agricultural system changes the location of farms? You have to, to really begin to consider what you think your food shed miles um, look like. Mm-hmm. Is it 200 miles with uh, trucks that run on batteries? That should be possible. Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the distinction now between urban and rural is a little fuzzy. So I think it's a that's a question that is much more specific in general. So if you're talking about uh, the amber uh, waves of grain, maybe you're talking about long distance transport by rail that is electrified. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about produce, you're talking you could talk more about a carry urban food supply food chain. Uh, green greenhouses that are heated with geothermal or kept warm with manuring, like um, forgot his name in Detroit does. Um, I, I think that agriculture is not one thing. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about fruit crops, um, like stone fruit, stone fruit grows in specific places, not everywhere. Mm-hmm. Can't grow them in some parts of the country. Um, but it's also about rediscovering crops that can grow in uh, climates where um, they are so they're more specialized, right? So we have moved towards more mono, monoculture crops that are easier to grow anywhere, like, you know, speaking about apples, for example. Mm-hmm. But there are species of apples that may not produce as much, but may be able to tolerate the cold better, or heat better, or you know, drier conditions. And so I think it's about returning agriculture to the question of soil and climate, and uh, diversifying the, the the species of of, uh, of plants that we use for.
more appreciation for what that means when we eliminate or reduce the use of fossil energy, whether it's for uh, fertilizer or fuel or pesticides and herbicides and, and other inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the post-carbon farming system, is there room for hydroponic and soilless growing systems? Well, I think I think that if the full life, life cycle accounting takes place, um, the room for hydroponic growing will be very small. And if you also take into account taste and flavor, uh, I suspect the room for hydroponic will be very small. It all depends on how the accounting is done. Okay. So if you're a post-carbon hydroponic grower, good luck. fossil energy in the post-carbon farm? You know, the time frame is really important to think about. A transition is very important to think about. I think that there's a role for fossil energy in the world going forward. What it is, I'm not quite sure of okay. yet. Okay. Um, so, for example, um, plastics in medicine are pretty That's great. You're the first person I've ever heard say that, and it's really interesting. Um, 
So I, th- I feel like if there's been one theme to this conversation, it is that waiting for the one group or the one person to tell us the one answer is not going to work. No, there's not one solution. We have to figure out, you know, this is, you know, one of the issues with quote-unquote science or sustainability science is this drive and desire to find a magic bullet to all the problems. Mm-hmm. But we live in places. Right. And so our challenge is really to reconnect with those places, mm-hmm. understand them, um, and, and, and act in harm, you know, and take partnership with those places. Mm-hmm. So people complain, let me just, I'll finish off my high horse. Uh, <laughs> with the glass to this last comment. Um, people complain, uh, I don't know how much time you spend in Southern California, but people say, oh, there are no seasons. Yeah, I lived in, I lived in L.A. for a couple of years, so yeah. Stephanie, I just appreciate your perspective on this so much. It's it's so very different from what I normally hear when I'm interviewing people on the topic of agriculture. And uh, I think that your thoughts about the subject really add a lot to, um, to this book and uh, will make, um, will really offer something special for my audience. Um, Thank you so much for your time, for your insight, and I look forward to our next conversation. Stephanie Pincel is one of the most inspiring people I have interviewed. Our conversation, as you could hear, I think was really fantastic. But beyond that, if you look her up and see the work that she has done and is continuing to do, it's just really powerful She assembled the team that created the Los Angeles County Sustainability Plan, which has wide-reaching ramifications. Did you know there are 88 cities in L.A. County? And fun fact, one in 33 Americans lives in Los Angeles County. I didn't know that, and I used to live there. The plan, which was adopted by L.A. County Board of Supervisors in 2019, is meant to comprehensively refocus county operations towards sustainability. What it also does is exemplify how other counties can adjust their infrastructure with a focus on social and environmental justice, and I just think that's so important. I also think this interview demonstrates that climate-smart farming is important for farmers everywhere 
and that industry organizations and governments really must support farmers in making the shift to regenerative agriculture, whether they're farming in a city on a rooftop or on a thousand acres in the middle of wherever. In any case, I feel very fortunate to have met Dr. Pincel at the Earth 2050 conference at UCLA in 2016. I didn't get to interview her for a year, but when we did connect in 2017, um, we spoke by phone and, um, and I just found her to be witty and insightful. And I think that comes through in the interview, don't you? I also want to thank Dr. Pincel for her flexibility and openness. During my career as a journalist, I always recorded every interview. That gave me the freedom to not take notes during the interview so I could simply focus on the conversation. But I also had a strict policy of never releasing the interview recordings to the public. That way, every interviewee could speak freely, knowing that they didn't have to worry about how they sounded. Since most of the articles I wrote were not in interview format, it didn't make sense to hunt down the original audio files for the audiobook version of A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption or for this podcast. But the chapter featuring Dr. Pincel was printed in a Q&A format. I tried reading that in my own voice, all of it, and it just sounded wrong. So I reached out to Dr. Pincel and she kindly agreed to let me use the original audio files for the audiobook and the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Climate Smart Farming Show. Tune in next time to hear my interview with farmer Jack Algira of Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture in Tarrytown, New York. You'll learn how the practices at Stone Barn Center exemplify some of the ideals of the post-carbon farming system. This interview was recorded on location at Stone Barns, so it has a very different feel from the other episodes. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening to the Climate Smart Farming Show podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like my book, A Farmer's Guide to Climate Disruption, now available in ebook, print, and audiobook. To support this podcast and my other creative endeavors for as little as $1 a month, please visit patreon.com forward slash Rebecca L. Fraser. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.